Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 5th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So, uh, as our readers have continued, listeners, sorry, our listeners who are also, one hopes, our readers, uh, uh, have continued to email in saying, please do go ahead and focus on your obsessions with uh, Andrew Cuomo and schools and and say whatever you want to say. We're going to say whatever we want to say, and this is not just a story that deals with our obsessions. Uh, the governor of the third largest state uh, in, in the country uh, uh, is is under fire on on two fronts, and there was a major story uh, that broke last night. Um, weird kind of thing because it looked like it was kind of an investigative report released by the Wall Street Journal, and then the New York Times followed up on it. Pretty much the same story with some different angles to it, uh, but indicating that the wheels are coming off the tricycle, uh, the Cuomo, the Andrew Cuomo tricycle. Um, because uh, this, the uh, the enemies of Cuomo or the people who feel abused or, or hard done by Cuomo are now coming out of the woodwork and retailing uh, stories that are very, very, very bad for him and possibly uh, suggest criminal ne- negligence and criminal liability. Uh, Noah, let's start with that criminal liability story uh, as, as uh, potential uh, as laid out in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Yeah, so it's <clears throat> kind of complicated. Um, but the time, the journal um, came out first and essentially confirmed, to the extent that it can be confirmed, that um, Governor Cuomo's office was leaning on uh, health officials and his health department to massage the numbers. Um, they had hard data coming out of nursing homes about deaths in nursing homes and were putting substantial pressure on officials to revise downward those numbers um, so that they could make him look better. Uh, that's essentially the allegation. And the journal has a variety of, uh, of reports about how that went down. Um, I actually prefer the Times report because it gets into a little bit more detail about who is involved. Um, I forget what his name is. Zucker? Yes, he, Howard uh, Zucker. Howard Zucker, yeah. Famously... Um, the model for Doogie Howser, MD. Signed off on this uh, effort, apparently. He's implicated in it. Um, a gentleman named Maltras, who uh, was the, the lead uh, person putting this pressure on public health officials. And one of the, I mean, this is as close to a smoking gun as it gets. One of the lines in the New York Times report, uh, I, don't, I don't think any other politician would survive this. Quote, health officials felt... The governor's office, whose opinion was conveyed by Mr. Maltras, wanted to simplify too much. Uh, they worried it was no longer a true scientific report, but they feared for their jobs if they did not go along. Right. That's, so that's what we it. have here. I mean, right. so, there's, there's no massaging that. That's uh, there was right. it was either you lose your jobs or we um, massage these numbers. We falsify the data to make me look better. One of the details in the Times report says that this intervention came a little bit before, but close to the time in which um, Andrew Cuomo was drafting 
his his book, his big celebratory, uh, you know, victory. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he was off. drafting. I'm sure he was drafting his book. <laughs> I'm sure he was sitting, burning Whoever midnight oil with his quill pen. <laughs> can I? Can I? There's another thing, uh, timeline wise, that I think is important because of the the false narrative that was constructed at the time, and that actually a lot of partisans still are clinging to in their desperate attempts not to see Cuomo for what he actually is and what he actually did. And that's that in the Times, I believe it was in the Times report. Um, they point out that one of the justifications or excuses that the Cuomo administration made was, well, we had to do this because we feared a politically motivated prosecution from the Trump Justice Department if we released all this stuff. And that was just, we were under so much pressure and we just, this is one of the reasons we did this. Well, the timeline that the New York Times constructs shows that that's not true. They were doing this before the, 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 federal government was involved at looking at what was going on at all there. So there goes another one of those sort of partisan uh, justifications that we heard a lot of in the mainstream media. It's like, oh, he's under siege from Trump. Of course he had to do this. Let's excuse it away. You can't do that anymore. Uh, Well, that, oh, go ahead. I just want to make a quick point about the book thing. Um, The fact that he was putting out this triumphant book at that time, that I'm sure he did not write, um, it speaks to the true psychopathology at work here. Um, when you are committing some sort of cover-up of that scale and that importance, um, to then go out of your way to draw attention to your role in this whole process, to to you know to to further raise your profile in you know directly linked to this to this massive cover-up. That is a, that's just a crazy thing to do. I mean, that is a, you know. It's sort of like. apparently testified before lawmakers. I don't know whether he was under oath or not, but he probably should have been if he was testifying Um, and misled lawmakers about what they knew and when they knew it and what the facts were and the figures were. And they're still auditing. They lied under oath. This is, this is. At two doogie. (laughs) I mean. Prosecutable malfeasance. Can we can we talk about the uh, you know uh, you know that that phrase that uh, Rick Wilson of the uh, Lincoln Project uh, therefore you know to be taken with a grain of salt but that phrase that he came up with that's the title of his book everything Trump touches dies well in a weird way everything anti Trump touches dies including the Lincoln Project if you think about some of the figures who have popped up in the last four years who are elevated to a very high level because they are willing to go to war with Trump or they are seen as the anti-Trump or they're put in some position in proximity to Trump. I think of Michael Avenatti, um, very much the same kind of story as Abe lays out, which is that Avenatti was under, was under, uh, was in danger criminally and, you know, in, in, both in uh, financial liability and personal liability and criminal action uh, in, in all over the place, and by by raising his profile and by becoming this kind of figure that people started saying, "Oh, he should run for president in 2020." He was on every television show every day, every night. Um, he exposed the light, which you know, the light was cast upon him, and then people who whom he had fleeced or had had mistreated. Uh, you know, went for his jugular and destroyed him. Right? There's that case. There's there's the Lincoln Project, which has sort of been exposed in this bizarre way uh, for its own uh, economic uh, depredations and for per- the personal depredations of at least one of its major staff members. And now we have Cuomo, who was the ultimate anti-Trump uh, in in the case of the virus and did this 
crazy lunatic thing, which is not only karmic, right? It's like he was daring the gods to come down on him. It's almost like he's the character in the Telltale Heart, and he's like, here, let me walk you through the room and show you. I'm just going to get you really close to the heart I've buried in the floorboards, so close that I'm not the only one who's going to hear it. You're going to hear the beating heart, too, of the person that I killed and, and, and put his heart in the floorboards. I mean... Who does that? Uh, It is almost as though there is something about the Trump era that drives the people who who wanted to uh, combat him into mania. Uh, Wilson's theory was that, you know, if you got close to Trump, uh, he would somehow put magic bad juju on you and you would be ruined. But I think this is a more interesting case of what happens when you have a figure like this who creates this weird, these weird counter figures. Not that Cuomo was a, Cuomo's only a weird counter figure in that he was a a singularly charmless politician known for being a a hard ass, uh, you know, impossible person to deal with. Um, and the last person you would call caring and empathic or, you know, concerned with the feelings and, and, and how he wanted to build things and make things and do things, but not in a heart, not in a way that exposed his heart. But wasn't there, there was something interesting that I, looking back, you know, from a little bit of distance from the Trump administration that, that's noticeable, which is that Trump's sort of, uh, uh, absolutely out there amorality, the fact that he was so kind of embraced that as part of his brand and part of, part of his personality, um, drove people who themselves were sort of immoral to suddenly tout themselves as the moral alternative to the amoral Trump. And in many, many cases, Avenatti, Lincoln Project, and now Cuomo, we see that actually they were they, they are just as compromised in terms of their character and lack of virtue. But Trump gave them, they, it's almost like they sought to recast themselves in virtuous uh, means. And Cuomo certainly did that in, in direct contrast to Trump at every press conference. So I think, it, I mean, there's something, of course, absolutely delicious and, 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 uh, to, to, to watch the downfall. But the, that's where I think the Trump derangement syndrome label doesn't quite capture what happened because a derangement can be left behind. This is actually something that's now getting baked into our politics right. in a not great way. Well, it's like, well, you know, it's like oh, the, yeah. the, the anti-Trump movement selected for people who could match Trump in a certain way. You know, they, 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 it found people who could play his game or so they thought. So, so they therefore they brought very similar Trumpian flaws to the undertaking. Right. I think that's 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 an important observation, and it also gets to the fact that when people were sort of defending Cuomo in the early going uh, from uh, Tish James's report, that was the first, you know, hard evidence or proof aside from what everybody knew anecdotally, which was that the nursing home deaths were covered up by fudging the numbers and all of that, that people said, "What well, you know, okay, now do Trump. And it's like, we did Trump. America did Trump. He lost the election in 2020. You know, he lost, you know, uh, was it uh, seven, almost eight million votes uh, were cast uh, for his rival as opposed to him. And he lost by, you know, 80, I don't know, uh, 80 electoral votes. And he lost... 
you know, the three states that he had won that that he had needed in uh, in in 2016. So he was punished. <laughs> so this notion somehow that it's not fair to talk about Cuomo because Trump is sitting there uh, is it was a was a was a preposterous line of defense. It, it, it seems to me, but it was kind of where people went in a kind of gut way. Uh, in part, this kind of shadow, you know, it's like the limb was removed from the American body politic, but it's still there and it's still aching and people are still feeling it and still trying to use it as an excuse not to make account and reckoning for the misbehaviors and 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 uh, and bad judgments and uh, and possibly criminal activity of people who, you know, stood against him, which uh, being having stood against him doesn't mean that you can't be a bad guy. Uh, but they sort of thought that it was some kind of immunity idol that you could then take and then not get it voted off the island. Well, you know, Devil's Island, Rikers Island. Uh, I don't know if they're they're in the offing, but one of the ways in which they may be in the offing for Andrew Cuomo uh, is the sexual harassment scandal. And um, Abe, you watched uh, Charlotte Bennett, the 25-year-old aide, uh, who was the second person to come out and say that Cuomo had had had, um, had hara- as an employee of state government had had uh, committed a textbook case of sexual harassment? In her case, she was on with Nora O'Donnell on the CBS Evening News. Tell us about it. Yeah, I thought because um, I had said yesterday on the podcast <clears throat> that I thought um, Cuomo had done himself some good with his uh, fake apology. Um, and it, it, to the extent that that was true, um, I really think that um, this interview undid any of that. Um, Charlotte Bennett was very impressive. She was very composed and sincere and serious and really brought you um, into the room and, and uh, in describing what she experienced with Cuomo. Um, it was in June. He went to her office to take dictation. And it was like a bad movie. At some point, he he asks her to turn off her tape recorder and starts discussing how lonely he is, starts asking her if, if she's attracted to older men. He explains that he he's fine with women as long as they're over 22, I think. And then um, the part that really just sh- struck me was he's he goes into her. She apparently has a, a, a some some trauma, pre-Cuomo trauma, uh, having been raped. And he starts going into her experience with trauma saying, so you, you've been raped, you've been raped. Are you, are you comfortable with, with intimacy? Um, You know, sort of um, kind of poking at that, uh, uh, feeling her out on, on her trauma, you know, to, I, I presume to sort of see if, you know, if there's a, like an opening there, you know, Um, it, and, she says at the time she was, and it's very believable because you, you feel it when she describes it, she was terrified to be there with this man. Um, this was this was an absolute nightmare experience for her. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind that that is the case. And and the idea that um, he could then come out and say, oh, I'm, I joke, I flirt. I, that, she was absolutely terrified. Well, and she says, you know, Nora O'Donnell said, you know, oh, well, could you have 
misconstrued it? Was he just being playful? And she just the look on her face when she just looks at the camera and says, no. And that I, I agree with Dave the most. I, I just watched snippets. I didn't watch the whole thing. But the idea that he's trying to like trauma bond with this person right. who he's actually threatening and harassing by bringing up her previous assault is horrifying. I mean, that is just like textbook, not what you do. Even if you're doing this as a friend or someone who's actually trying to help someone, that is not the boundary crossing that he did with such abandon. And then to call that playful or to excuse himself as just joking and this is how I behave, that's appalling. Look, we know uh, he 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 has not denied anything, any piece of anecdote that Charlotte Bennett has laid out about what happened. What he has said is he never touched anybody inappropriately. That That is then belied, of course, by the photo of him, uh, inappropriate, appropriate, whatever you want to call it, the photo of him uh, touching uh, Ms. Rath at the wedding, uh, you know, around her head, uh, and this kind of expression of what What are you doing there? Well, now, and granted, it, yeah, and photographs. It's yeah. yeah. I just I just want to say and those are two distinct things because this is a woman who worked for him. She she is in a subordinate position to him. Her job depends on him. And if they had just been on a bad Tinder date then we wouldn't be talking about this, right? Like he would just be kind of a bore and she'd hopefully never give him a second look. But this right. is a case where he's they're in the workplace. So those there are very different rules yeah. and he clearly knows them because he's talked about them publicly and when they're applied to other, you know, men in power. So that I think that distinction is important because we, you know, a lot of the stuff we talk about, we talk about the Me Too movement, some of the, these things are private interpersonal exchanges that, that cross a line versus a professional atmosphere where this is clearly wrong. Okay, and so all of these old are enough to be her close, to be her grandfather. He is almost 40 years older than she is. I mean, just think, I mean, in the previous eras, she would have been entirely old enough to be, to, to, for him to be her grandfather. Um, and you know, aside from everything else, like get your hands off her, you creep. Like what you're 63 years old. Like all these go, are new go details pick on somebody your own about, size. These are new details about an old story, though. The notion here that you know this is gonna shake anything loose, the allegations against Andrew Cuomo's uh, government massaging numbers to hide dead bodies, literally, to make him look better. The notion here that there's, you know, that multiple women now have accused him of being handsy and being solicitous. I had this thing from New York State Majority, Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins yesterday who said that Cuomo shouldn't resign unless a fourth accuser comes out. And when that happens, I guarantee you the goalposts are going to move. We had a Quinnipiac poll yesterday that showed 55% of New Yorkers don't want Andrew Cuomo to resign, that his approval ratings are even. And that there's some, you know, some tepid support for him to seek a fourth term as governor, but no doubt that they would get over this because what we're witnessing here is the same foible that we saw on the part of Republicans who rallied around Donald Trump. We spent the last year accusing Republicans of having some sort of a bizarre attachment, some sort of phenomenon on display that was unique to Republicans and Republican psychology. And when what it was is, is entirely human, it, it's... It's a, a sin, it's a foible, but it is nevertheless a human response to say, well, you know, devil I know, at least he's on our side. Right. Well, let me let me offer this as a possible caveat. And this is one of the reasons that um, 
this country crossed the Rubicon uh, in terms of expectations of our leaders and what our leaders thought they could get away with and everything with what happened with Bill Clinton in 1998. Maybe the reason that it's fine with them, that Cuomo stay, is that they is that nobody anymore has any expectations that uh, political leaders are anything but scum. And that's, and that's on your side. Now, you like them, and they're not scum because they are advocating things that you want to believe in. But personally, you got no truck with them. But if you, if you tell them, look, you know, this guy, uh, you know, harassed women and he covered up nursing home deaths and all that, it's like, well, fine, but I like the Second Avenue subway. Or, you know, I like the Tappan Zee Bridge. Or, or I like LaGuardia Airport, all of which I like, by the way. So, I, you know, but uh, Trump had this from Republicans and Cuomo has it from Democrats, which is that we no longer expect our politicians to be good men. I don't know about women, because this is a whole different set of uh, calculations about women. I'm sorry not to be totally egalitarian. But uh, people don't expect politicians to be good men. Now, maybe there are politicians who are elected in part because they do seem to be good men and that that is their calling card, which I think is the case with Biden, for example. So if it turns out that, you know, Joe Biden does something horrible to a woman in the Oval Office, it may have a har- it may have a much worse impact on him than it would on on somebody like Trump who comes into office already having already having it been established that he talked disgustingly about women and that his obviously his own personal conduct and comportment. Okay, but I got to push back on Biden for one second. I'm going to interrupt you because there, from the perspective, I don't know, and I talk about this a lot with some of my friends who are all along all points of the political spectrum. He's Biden gives off a bit of a creepy vibe if you're a woman. Like he's really handsy. Now they can say, oh, he's affectionate. And because he's older, he's like kind of a nice, you know, grandpa. He gets, he violates people's personal space on the regular. And, you know, that's setting aside whether the Tara Reid allegations were actually legitimate or not. Obviously, they're, you know, those were actually never thoroughly investigated in the way that, you know, demands were made when it was right. Republican accused. But he he violates people's personal space. And his argument, his claim was always like, oh, I'm a different generation, this or that. So you're told people have made, right. this can make people uncomfortable. And he's still like that. So I'm not saying he, I, okay. I never I'm thought not, of him as that kind of guy. I'm not defending him that way, but I'm saying he's a grief stricken parent. He lost his wife in a car accident. He lost two children. He's so empathic. He talks about his stutter that one of the things, his presentation, his personal presentation is that he's a good person in contrast to Trump, who might be at best you know, a t- the tough man who makes a tender chicken, to use the uh, Purdue chicken slogan, right? Like, you wouldn't want him. You wouldn't want him as your friend, but maybe you want him. You know, you, you know, you need him on that wall, right? And Cuomo was kind of the same way. Like, he's a except, thug, but he's your thug. Except, I, I mean, of course, I think that is true about Cuomo. But throughout the course of the pandemic, he kind of recast himself as a good man. Right. That's, Which is why right. this is hurting. Exactly. So, but I'm saying that um, uh, his mistake maybe was in thing, but but he recast himself as a good man. But what I'm saying is, when it comes down to it, if you then say, you know what, he's really he's really crappy. He covered up nursing home deaths to aggrandize himself, and he and he mole- you know, and he molests women and harasses women. And you're like, look, I just don't expect anything of him anyway. 
that was fine. You know, I, I, you know, I have no expectations. Right. And that was the thing that happened. The, you know, the hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. When the United States, when the Democratic Party in 1992 decided collectively to believe Bill Clinton when he said, I, I, you know, Jennifer Flowers is a liar and these women who say things about me are liars. And they decided to say, we're, we're closing our eyes to this because we want George H.W. Bush out. And this is a young guy and all of that. And his wife is sitting beside him. And she says she's not the kind of person who stands by her man and bakes cookies. Then we're going to go with him. Something changed. Like the, the, the expectation, nobody, you shouldn't expect politicians to be good. People in power tend not to be good. But they were supposed to at least comport themselves with an eye toward standard moral choices and try to you know draw between the and 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 not publicly expose themselves and handle themselves in ways that uh, that that violated the elementary rules of good conduct in society and that ended almost that ended 29 years ago with Bill Clinton's ascension to the Democratic nomination. Well, it 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 became yes, I mean it became public because there've always right. been leaders who behave that way. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's there's a very much to go with your Purdue analogy, kind of a chicken and egg problem here, right? Because does power attract people with an overly developed sense of entitlement or do they develop more entitlement once they have access to power? Because I think we have both kinds of politicians. And and this includes women. We have, you know, I'm sorry, Katie Hill had a, was overly entitled and felt she could behave with, you know, however she wanted to with her staff. So it's not it, it, it generally tends to be men, but women do this, too. So I think that right. that that issue, the fact that we seem to have had a cultural acceptance that the press and the public shouldn't cover that up had existed in a healthy way for a while. And, scan, you know, Gary Hart, there were lots of politicians brought down by the, particularly their sexual scandals. But you're right that I think at that moment, the broader cultural uh, powers decided, you know, we're going to have a much more instrumental relationship with our, our democratic politicians when they're accused of things post-Clinton. Right. right. Look, there's no question that in 1961 or 1962, if the American public had found out about what John F. Kennedy was doing in the pool with with Mimi Fonstock and others that he would have been out of all, he would have, he would have been driven. Well, from his girlfriends ended up seconds. dead sometimes. So it's I know. Like it was much so I'm just saying that there were, there was a, there were a different set of standards. The standards changed in part because people discovered that politicians of the past who were so in particular Kennedy, who had become this kind of mythological figure were people of highly problematic character. And either you were going to say they were bad back then or you were going to say, well, we can't hold, I mean, we we would lose the wonders, wonders of the Kennedys should we use this as an inviolable standard going forward. And then what you get 24 years after Clinton is Trump. Uh, and again, maybe Republicans think that that deal, you know, or Trump fans believe that deal was a, was a good deal or a good bargain. Um, uh, I, I don't uh, for many reasons, but I mean, the, part of the reason here is that uh, you have no, there's no limiting principle. One of the virtues of the hypocrisy standard is that it represents a limiting principle on what 
politicians can do with their staffs and what they can do in the exercise of power. We have limiting principles in the United States. The Constitution is a limiting principle. Balance of powers is a limiting principle. Our laws and the rule of law is a limiting principle. But when it comes right down to it day to day, what are the limiting principles on somebody like Andrew Cuomo? We can now see that there are very few. Uh, as long as the people around him are scared to death of him and will do whatever he says because they know that he will rip his jugular out because he has no limiting principles. With that, let me talk to you about our first sponsor today, Dan Senor's podcast, Post-Corona. Fantastic podcast, a couple months old, uh, started to examine what life would be like in America, what life will be like in America and in the world as the virus recedes and we return to normal and what normal will be. Um, I was a guest on it talking about uh, New York and New York theater. Uh, Neil Ferguson, the Stanford historian, was on talking about the history of pandemics. Uh, uh, Billy Bean, the the sports guru, was on talking about the future of sports. But um, the, the podcast that entranced everybody in particular was one that Dan did uh, with Yonatan Adiri, uh, an Israeli health entrepreneur, on what on Israel as vaccination nation. This was like several months ago. He did it. Talked to Adiri to have Adiri explain why it was that Israel was uh, doing such a great job uh, in the very early stages of the vaccine in terms of uh, administering it, getting it out, getting it out in the right way, what it was about Israeli society, what it was about the way Israel constitutes and the way the government functions and its health system functions that made this possible. Um, and uh, Adiri is now back. Uh, this the new post Corona podcast this weekend uh, is an update from him on everything that's been going on and what will be going on in the United States because Israel is, he says, about five months ahead of the United States in terms of getting the population vaccinated and uh, getting back to ordinary life. Um, actually, more draconian lockdowns in Israel than here uh, in most places, uh, intermittently on and off. Bibi Netanyahu, though very much a friend of Trump's, was kind of a, an, was the opposite of Trump. when it, He was the most serious person about the dangers of the vaccine in his country, the virus in his country, uh, therefore the most uh, determined to buy enough vaccine and to get a regime in place to get rid of the virus as fast as possible. And that was one of the first things he did was set up a purchasing and distribution system, uh, and then when it was ready to go, they went like uh, gangbusters. And so Israel is now showing the way, not only in how to create a, a vaccination regime, but in what will happen when you reopen, how how things will go, how large the economic growth spurt will be, how much, um, let's say, a social joy will be expressed by people who have been let loose after a year, you know, in in semi quarantine, um, it's a fascinating discussion. It it uh, it uh, will you know it's instructive and and amusing and interesting, like all of the post corona podcasts. So go to uh, Apple Podcasts, go to Google Podcasts, go to Stitcher, uh, go wherever you have to go. Subscribe to Post Corona with Dan Senor S E N O R. This episode is great, and uh, all the previous ones are great, too. So post-corona, 
with Dan Cedor, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Podcast. Um, remember, uh, remember, forty-eight hours ago, uh, when uh, or thirty-six hours ago, whatever, when uh, Joe Biden said that uh, it was Neanderthal thinking that had led Texas to lift uh, all of its. Uh, mandates, uh, statewide mandates and rules uh, regarding the virus and letting uh, everybody have their own head in what they were going to do to combat it or to fight it or whatever. Um, And how uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke, among other people, said that uh, uh, Governor uh, Abbott was literally trying to kill people. He used the word literally. He literally was trying to kill people. Well, Ned Lamont, the governor of uh, Connecticut, uh, uh, first uh, uh, rose to fame in 2006 by challenging and beating Joe Lieberman as the moveon.org candidate for Senate in in, in Connecticut and uh, took the Democratic nomination away from Joe Lieberman, who then ran and won as an independent his final term. Ned Lamont eventually has become governor of Connecticut, so he's a very left-wing guy, and guess what he just did? Lifted all mandates statewide in Connecticut. Neanderthal he lifted thinking? all. He lifted. He lifted. Here's here's okay. where the goalposts are moving okay. because I, I'm right in the belly of this beast. Um, he lifted caps on um, the capacity of basically any indoor space, restaurants, museums, houses of worship, what have you, everything. I, I'm not even sure. I'm not sure about schools. That might not, it might be a blind spot there. Um, you can check me on that. But capacity limits. What he didn't do is um, lift a mask mandate, which now is the only thing that anybody actually was frustrated with about Texas or Mississippi. Wasn't about the capacity stuff or the, you know, the, the checks or the, uh, you know, the reimposition of uh, mitigation strategies if you hit a certain threshold of infection rates. Nobody ever said anything about that. In fact, you're crazy if you think anybody ever said anything about that. All anybody cared about was the mask mandate and the fact that Texas had become the 15th state without a mask mandate. That was what was really frustrating and that was why it was neanderthal thinking Ned lamont he's he's just doing what connecticut wants him to do leave him alone yeah i'm like yeah. and no one as as uh you know was not kind of emphasized or reported much a lot of biz- private businesses in texas responded to the lifting of a lot of the bans by actually emphasizing their commitment to mask wearing. So one of the major grocery store changes in t- chains in Texas said, you know what, we still have a policy that you have to wear a mask inside our stores and people will wear masks. I mean, this is actually not controversial, but the way it's being messaged, no, is- why is it not controversial? Because that's literally the words that Governor Abbott used right. when he lifted this mandate. He said that businesses, I'm not going to, he's obviously he's not going to abrogate the freedom of business to do what they want to do. But he said very explicitly that this is what you should do. If you want to do this, you should do this. If you're a very small business where you have capacity for 10 people in your, in your building, in your room to, you can have 10 people in that room. That's what this is for. And that's really all it's for. Um, it's, it's such an irrational response that I can only attribute it to politics that Joe Biden, we've been saying this for a while that Joe Biden doesn't want anything to move until the stimulus bill is passed, at which point he can take credit for everything. And anything that happens before then isn't on his timetable. You know, And the I, way this White House has responded, by the way, to what has become a controversy around his remarks, 
first of all, this is a glimpse at the real Biden. This is the elbow throwing Joe Biden that everybody who's ever followed his career in politics, sir, you know, anytime oh, before you're such a February of 2020. Pony soldier. Sorry. <laughs> right. They want to put you back in chains. I mean, the guy has a, has a track record of being an elbow thrower. He, he, he's been in this business for a while. He knows how it works. And that's the real Joe Biden, um, which is interesting to see, you know, who this person is, but the white house has been very, you know, has been actively trying to, I guess, clean up after these remarks, trying to restore the image of Joe Biden as this, you know, bridge building paternalistic, you know, com committed to uh, comedy and collegiality kind of guy, which is never who he was. Um, but it's, it's interesting that this sort of cut at what they think his brand is. Um, and if, you know, eventually they'll allow him to take questions at some point. If his handlers in the White House will allow the president to act as the chief executive of the, the federal government, then eventually we're going to get more and more glimpses of who this person really is to the to the frustration, presumably, of uh, the people around him. Well, that was a, it was actually an interesting sort of game. It was it was kind of like whack-a-mole when he was running, right? Because when he was when he was un, in unguarded moments, remember, he called someone fat. He was, you know, he, he would lash out at reporters who were asking perfectly legitimate questions. He gets really testy. And they are they were extremely disciplined about keeping that on the on the lockdown. And, and as we mentioned yesterday, you know, they cut a feed from the White House when he actually was like, hey, let's talk. I mean, they know this and Noah's absolutely right. It'll be fascinating to see if they can maintain that discipline for the next few years. Now we should say, by the way, that Connecticut is in a really good place. Connecticut's infection rate is pretty low. They've got upwards of 20% saturation in uh, the vaccine. Um, so there's very little reason to say that they shouldn't pull back on this, but you do have the public health bureaucracy saying now is not the time. You know, it's um, directly in response to Connecticut situation. It's interesting because with the public health bureaucracy is saying now it's not time. And there's the, the press is, you know, coming out with story after story about variants and vaccines and problems and all the rest of it. And none of it's kind of working. Right. Because the public is, is finally just too sick of of where we're at to um, continue to sort of get sucked in by every new scary story. It, That's another thing. And I feel like, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm monopolizing here, but if the polls were right, <clears throat> if the public was really as terrified as they tell pollsters, really as scared of going outside, really as committed to the, the regime we've lived under for a year, Connecticut wouldn't be doing this. Texas wouldn't be doing this. Florida wouldn't be doing this. It's not, it, it's more illusory than I think we give it credit for. It's well, what you're supposed to say in public. That, look, that's that's a big part. But the other thing, of course, is that intensity of interest always in, in political terms dwarfs um, uh, issues that people ag agree with but don't care that much about. For This is how we have the incredibly disparate effect of 4 million, uh, you know, the unions that represent 4 million teachers dominating the discussion of what, what is supposed to happen with 75 million school children. Uh, who have 150 million parents, like you would think under those circumstances. Okay, it's not 150 million parents, whatever, 120 million parents or whatever the number is, uh, you know, multiples of many more than the people who are insisting that the schools remain closed or that they, that they don't work on it. Their intensity of interest simply has not matched the intensity of the counter-interest uh, if it had, if there were parents, you know, demonstrating and marching on this and doing whatever and writing tens of millions of letters, 
and 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 having you know aside from people you know screaming on Twitter or us talking about it and stuff like that, if it were matched and politicians got really scared that they were that they were on the they were crosswise of the people who were going to kick them out of office for their misbehavior, uh, they would not be they would not find it so easy to assent to what the unions want. And I think similarly with the virus, those who are fearful of the virus, at least in the at least in the first six to eight months, the intensity of their fear dwarfed the ah look, we just have to go on with our lives. It's fine. All right, I'll wear a mat. Whatever. There's not, you know, uh when someone said, what are you crazy? You can't do this because you're, you could unknowingly spread the virus to someone and kill them. They're like, all right. I mean, you kind of, I don't want to live like this, but whatever I'm going to, you know, so there, there's a mismatch of intensity. We've been waiting for that mismatch to flip, right? Or the, or for the mismatch to become more of a match. Uh, these are little indications that the mismatches become a match. What Texas is doing, what 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 Connecticut is doing, even the liberalization in New York uh, over the next couple of weeks represents some form of that. But I mean, that is also human nature. Human nature on the part of people who want to arrogate power and want to use it and love the feeling of it uh, need to be scared that they're doing it is going to have deleterious consequences to them. And it's just simply the case that blue state mayors, blue state governors, and the people who want lockdowns, want mandates and all of this, are not scared and have not been frightened by their publics into relenting uh, out of of, uh, a reasoned caution about their own futures. So I don't really know what to do about that. But I do know that what you should do right now is go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy books and buy The Telling by Mark Gerson, the book I've been talking to you about and we'll be talking to you about for the next month. Uh, Mark's uh, deep comprehensive study of the Haggadah, the Passover, Seder, handbook, guidebook, manual, uh, that Jews have used uh, twice a year, uh, two successive days uh, for a thousand years, <clears throat> wherever they are. If they're chi- if they're in China, if they're in America, if they're in Cameroon, if they're in Argentina, everybody uses the Passover Haggadah uh, in different ways and different emphases. And he explores this remarkable documents power and authority and uh, immense richness. It is designed to provoke discussion and debate. Uh, that is what it's for, so that we commemorate Passover, uh, Jews commemorate Passover by talking, reading and talking and talking about what happened in the Exodus, in Egypt, and to the Jewish people and what the ideas of Judaism are that undergird the Seder. So this is a a fascinating and thrilling intellectual journey. The Telling How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life by Mark Gerson, G-E-R-S-O-N. So buy it today and get ready for your Seder with with a book that will give you many new avenues of discussion at your Seder. And we thank 
Mark Gerson and the telling for sponsoring the commentary podcast. Um, so let's talk about masks again, because everything has gotten confused and jumbled. So lockdowns are bad. Uh, I think we can pretty much say, or I think uh, evidence will be, will grow <clears throat> that the lockdowns were a uh, terrible public policy, uh, in part because they simply did not follow uh, the, 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 the results that we're supposed to follow from them did not follow from them, right? The states where things were tightest did have not shown greater results in preventing the spread of corona. Now, you can't run the counterpositive or the counterfactual and say if they hadn't done it, maybe it would have been twice as bad. So you got that going for you, but you can't prove that. In theory, it should be that, yeah, Florida did a lot worse than New York, and Florida did better than New York. Or uh, Georgia, which, of course, was said by the Atlantic's Amanda Mull to be um, doing an experiment in human sacrifice, uh, has a uh, as an overall um, you know a deaths from Corona number resolutely in the middle of the state pack uh, of the fifty states. So the lockdowns are bad policy. We now associate mask mandates with lo- with lockdowns, and mandates are generally bad altogether unless they're you know I don't know seatbelt laws or something like that. Like you can't. Tell the, gov- the government tells people what to do when they're walking down the street or they're doing whatever is a very weird thing that we it's very discomforting. But masks are the solution, not the problem. And we have gotten totally confused, particularly on the right, about this because all masks are supposed to do is be a way that particulate matter that comes out of your mouth. Or, or or either goes into your mouth or comes out of your mouth or out of your nose, doesn't go into somebody else's mouth or nose. That's it. It's not about anything else. And so this notion that we all live, we're, you know, we live in a community, we live in a society, and we have to sort of function as, as good citizens and uh, to, with some care for each other, this is a very low bar to clear, it seems to me. Uh, even though it is very onerous on certain people, and again, it's like incredibly onerous on kids and sco- kids who are in school who have to sit with a mask eight hours in school. Like it's 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 uh, that's that that's a very hard call to make. But masks are the way out of lockdown, and how this all got confused and jumbled together. Well, honestly, I th- I think you could have said that in November of last year. I think we did say, think it. Can say, yeah, but I don't think you can say now, honestly, that masking is the way out of lockdown when masking has been uh, the way of life now for about a year and lockdown has been a, a phenomenon that sort of comes and goes. Um, where the problem with the people who are so outraged by the lack of a statewide masking mandate is that there's no enforcement mechanism other than individuals businesses, institutions, and people enforce this norm. And with the exception of a few viral videos on TikTok, it's relatively well policed. Um, And there will always be violators. There's no vice squad going around with the power of, uh, with policing power, enforcing these masks. Oh, I'm not talking about mandates. Just as they're not enforcing caps on businesses. I'm not talking about mandates. I'm simply talking about the common sense of wearing a mask 
Okay, well, as I'm a push very, back again on a little bit as on a that. very low bar, as a low bar, yeah, and I, I'm not anti-mask. I go out in a mask every single day. Um, but then you have folks like the president of the United States, who was fully vaccinated in December, <laughs> who now cannot be seen without two masks yeah, on. Same with Harris, Kamala Harris. Yep, but that's not science. That's not respect for your fellow man. That's not a social norm. That's self-reinforcing. That's just play acting for the sake of the of the public, because the public is too stupid to know what's good for them unless somebody is holding their hand or presenting themselves as a good example. Now, I think every responsible person should do this, but that's not responsible. That's excessive. <clears throat> and there, you, there's no reason why you shouldn't resent that because you're being manipulated. Yeah, again, I don't know that the people who sort of claim to be anti-mask are in practice not wearing masks. I th- I think it is a it is a statement <clears throat> against the um the public health bureaucracy and uh, uh sort of you know one of distrust and um just uh tired of hearing from this body of opinion that has been wrong that has been contradictory um, that is dragged on too long. It's just it's just a way of saying I'm not listening to you. Whether or not the, the same people who say that actually go out and wear masks, I, I don't know. Well, and, and Noah makes a good point, which I think is too rarely uh, raised in mainstream media discussions of this, which is that it, it is the excessive person acting out in public, refusing to wear a mask that gets a ton of attention. Most people, even in places like Florida, where, you know, I, I mentioned I've been everybody's got their mask on. And I have even seen here in DC where mask wearing is kind of, I think, excessive and you'll get screamed at if you're 20 yards away on a sidewalk walking your dog and no one else is around and someone sees you without a mask, some some busybody will still yell at you. I have seen interactions with small businesses, particularly restaurants that have said to patrons, you know, a whole range of things like while you're sitting at your table, when your server comes to take your order, please keep your mask on. Well, you know, ple- or I've seen, you know, the guy at the CVS has several times had to say to people up oh, mask over the nose because everybody likes to walk around, you know, sort of passive aggressively with it under their nose. I've seen that. And you know what? Nine times out of 10 people are like, oh, yeah, hey, no problem. And do it. Occasionally, they'll grumble or get a little bit of stink eye, but people comply. So I do think we've had this, there's there's a, an incentive, particularly in the media, to, to exacerbate this idea that there's a trend of anti-politicized anti-maskers. But I'm not sure that statistically that's true. And I agree right. that there are a lot of people who will say that because, right. as Abe says, they're angry about all the mandates um, as a kind of acting out, but they actually well, still wear a mask. Well, look, the, having said what I said, I think that one of the great catastrophes in our public health messaging at the moment is when Dr. Fauci or people say, no, we're going to be wearing masks for another year. I mean, you do that and people, this is like, um, you know, it's like uh, people on a diet. Like at some point you're on a diet and then you read something that says that the thing that you were eating actually uh, is bad on the glycemic scale. So you really not, that need that you can't eat that anymore either. And then they say, okay, the hell with it. I'm not doing any of it because I can't live like this. And if you don't give people the sense that the thing that annoys them most, even if it's the lowest, you know, level of compliance that you can require, which is being when you're around other people, particularly in indoor spaces, wearing a mask, if you don't say to them, this is temporary, this will be over soon. If you if you act because you and in part this is a this is a weakness and failure on the part of doctors 
who have been wearing masks as part of their professional lives since they were 18 years old. But we haven't, and we don't. And that's just a simple matter of fact, and they are harming our ability to get back to normal by saying that we are going to be doing this forever because this is the sort of thing that will cause uh, you know, sort of individual, a million or two million or five million individual little revolts that might, in fact, hamper the progress that has been made in reducing the spread of the virus, which we see it's now unambiguous. Rochelle Walensky of the CDC can talk about how the fourth wave is coming and we're all in debt, it's all at risk. The numbers are not bearing this out. The numbers are good. The numbers are great. The numbers are going down. Look, people ignore the CDC all the time. Ignoring the CDC is the natural state of affairs. The CDC recommends that for men, you should drink one alcohol, two alcoholic beverages per day at most. For women, it's one. No one pays attention to that. No one has anything but contempt for that. And if anybody were to really dig into that, it would be assaulted for being antediluvian and sexist and not uh, health conscious. There's half a dozen other regulations that the CDC recommends you you abide by if you want to be a healthful person, if you want to, if your primary concern in life is wellness. But if you actually want to live, then then actually abiding by the CDC's recommendations is detrimental to your mental health. This is not going to be a difficult psychological hurdle for us to overcome in a very short period of time. Well, come on. There's a real difference between the CDC saying all things being equal, you should only have two drinks and you should only have one drink because it's like, I didn't ask. But if you're in the middle of a deadly pandemic, what what the CDC says you have to do to mitigate the spread and keep your family from dying is a matter of a little more more moment. Let's see. We'll see. When the CDC issues its vaccine guidelines for the guidelines that you're supposed to abide by once you're fully vaccinated for this thing. And if they're not as liberal as you could possibly get uh, liberal to the tune of what you can do after you've got an MMR, after you've got, uh, you know, a a, a tetanus shot, if they're not that, then yeah, I imagine that there will be an explosion of apathy. There's, there's a funny way in which the, the way that we now are being asked to treat CDC recommendations is kind of the way if you ever travel overseas, in particular to areas that aren't just like regular tourist destinations, you go to the State Department and you look to see if there's, you know, if this is a safe place to visit. And they have different rankings, right? It's like, don't go here. No US citizen should go here. There's like, "Eh, you can go, but take these precautions. In a weird way, we're all being asked as Americans to think of each other and every where we go and everything we do, like there's a State Department security warning. And and the CDC is really not the right, it's really not meant to do that. And I think for now, we've accepted it. But I'm starting to really second guess this. And and particularly, I, I agree with Noah, everyone should watch very closely what those regulations say, because if they're even remotely, you know, well, you still got to wear a mask all the time, be careful hugging your, you know, equally vaccinated relatives, people will then ignore everything else. Maybe you're more sensitive to certain things than others. You know your body better than other people and you can substitute your better judgment. I'm I'm certain they will not be liberal. I mean, I'm certain that that those guidelines will continue to um, restrain us in in various ways. You know, I was thinking that kind of reminds me of uh, during the war on terror years, um, uh, Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine, right? Where he said that if there's a if there's a one percent chance that Pakistan can somehow get a nuke and they put a nuke in the hands of uh, an Al Qaeda terrorist, we have to act as if it's a certainty. 
Um, and that this was made fun of and savaged uh, by Cheney's uh, uh, enemies. Meanwhile, all that meant was that that didn't put any that didn't impose any restrictions on on the population at large. That just meant being vigilant abroad. Um, this is the one percent uh, doctrine, which imposes um, this these huge restraints on all of us at all times without an end in sight. And the worst of it is what it is doing to kids. I mean, the worst of it is what it is doing to kids. I have three of them myself who are in incredibly fortunate circumstances, uh, going to school, uh, school is open and all of that. But uh, let me tell you this talk about the despair and the difficulties uh, that they are, that, that, that people of this uh, age group are, are going through is very real. It's real to all of them. They are struggling. Uh, mental health professionals report that they are seeing levels of distress uh, the likes of which they've never seen. Nobody can get an appointment with a psychologist or psychiatrist uh, because they're they're overbooked and 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 overburdened. Um, you know, this is very very real, and maybe it's not real to Anthony Fauci, but it's real to me, and it's real to my kids and their friends, and it's real to Christine's kids, and it's real to Noah's kids, and it would be real to Abe's kids if Abe had kids. It's real to everybody who is a parent, which is one of the reasons that I keep wondering why it is that there isn't this parent revolt that has that has started. Um, but part of it is, of course, that we we have to manage the world as we're living in it day to day, and may not have really time or space to deal with this as a you know as an ongoing matter. Let me let me pull back for a second and just talk to you about our final sponsor. The Bonson Group, look, we got good news this morning, uh, 379,000 new jobs created in the month of February, which is a huge gain over January um, and, and indicative of, uh, of inc- inc- positive, uh, positive, I believe, positive economic news, not only about the present, but about the future. But if I want to know what you know where i'm going to learn about what this means and what this means both in terms of the intersection of politics policy and markets and my own finances uh if i need the kind of analysis that will teach me how to look at this in the right way i go to the bonson group run by david bonson uh his firm of um uh, more than uh, more than a score of financial professionals managing more than two and a half billion dollars uh, bicoastally, and uh, David produces two documents: the DCToday.com and DividendCafe.com weekly, uh, to provide the analysis of macroeconomics uh, and how that will come to have an effect on. What the markets do, the bond markets, the stock market, uh, foreign markets, all of that, and therefore how to look to your own financial future. If you are looking for help in terms of how to manage your own financial future, you need to look to the Bonson Group, read their stuff at DC Today, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com and consider the Bonson Group for your financial management needs. Uh, it is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial advice business. So um, uh, we have a weekend uh, 
weekend coming up. Uh, is anybody excited about coming to America too? Okay, actually, I, I am because my kids and I watched the first one. I remember seeing it back when it first came out. And so my kids and I watched the original. <laughs> A lot of like stuff that would not get me today, just putting that out there. Um, so I we for kind of weird nostalgic purposes. Yeah, just like I watched Hot Tub Time Machine 1 and 2, I will definitely be watching Coming to America too. It's very, it's very funny that you that the first thing that comes to your mind is a comedy that was made 10 years ago mm -hmm. because those kind of comedies are on the way out. You mean hot tub? They're not getting made anymore. No, right. they're yeah. They're not, they're not getting made anymore. They push boundaries. Because it's, because it's almost impossible to get a script like that made. So yes, absolutely. What, what, do, you, what do we mean by those yeah. kind of comedies? Irreverent blockbuster comedies Wait, that get a, you're talking uh, about hot tub time machine. nationwide release. Yeah. I get a nationwide release, sort of irreverent, ribald, um, sort of stuff yeah. that can't make it through the industry anymore. Well, so coming to America, which is called coming to America with a two, um, uh, of course the uh, sequel to the original Eddie Murphy Arsenio Hall movie about the, about the uh, African prince who comes uh, and uh, goes uh, incognito in Queens to find, to find a queen. <laughs> right. But to find somebody who is not, um, you know, who is like uh, unspoiled, like you would come to America to look for an unspoiled person. Um, uh, I I remember it being kind of lame, uh, the movie, uh, except for these explosive bits of character business that Eddie Murphy did in the barbershop and playing an old Jew and an old barber and, and, a, and a sort of a wannabe Rick James singer and uh, various other stuff. Um, yeah, that, I agree. Uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not my favorite Eddie movie Eddie Murphy movie by a long shot, right? But no, but it's a wonderful parody of some of the the kind of at the time the tropes about black cinema that were kind of accepted as the norm. He he mocks them mercilessly. I mean, he's got the the crazy soul singer. There's like the church scenes, you know. There's like the, there's a guy whose whose business is running his father's hair, you know, oil uh, emporium. I mean, he mocks his he mocks himself and his kind of culture mercilessly in a way that I don't think today you would be allowed to do without right. a, an overlay of earnestness. It's a, no it's a masterpiece, and I will brook no no <laughs> criticism of it okay. whatsoever. Okay, well, so you will be watching Coming to America, and so will Christine, and I guess I John will. John Amos in it? What? Yes. He yes. is? Awesome. John Amos runs yeah. the runs the um, the fake McDonald's. Yeah. I know. Right? I'm queen, I'm queen it's McDowell's. It's McDowell's. McDowell's, yes. <laughs> yeah. I used to live in my town growing up. It would come into our video store. Which apparently was um, was a, a, a Wendy's that closed a week before they had to film the movie, and so they just, they just, they had a full 360 degree hamburger uh you know fast food set um for that uh for that purpose of course the other interesting thing about coming to america uh written by a white men directed by a white man uh this is not true of the sequel which has been written and directed by african americans so and of course stolen from a white man because of course one of the great stories of coming to america is that the idea for the movie came from the semi-humorist Art Buckwald, the guy who wrote the least funny humor column in the history of the world for the Washington Post for 35 years, but he wrote a screenplay about an African prince who comes to America to look for a bride uh, that uh, was purchased uh, for me, and it was sort of announced that Eddie Murphy would make it, and then it was canceled, and two years later, Eddie Murphy makes the same movie, and Buckwald sues 
and there is a settlement and nobody knows how large the settlement was, which means that the settlement was enormous. <laughs> yeah. Many, many millions of dollars. So Art Buckwald uh, never didn't have to pay the price for not being funny. Uh, so for that little piece of, uh, of trivia, we will, uh, we will bid you a, a warm, uh, hope you have a, a good weekend and enjoy whatever you may stream. And we'll be back on Monday. So for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.